actually. Um, the, the Kalelion, right? He gets the Kalelion, and the Yom Nabanim, his expertise is infertility and halakhi worship. Pua Pua is an, an organization that is based in Eretz Israel, but also around the world. Uh, talk towards with fertility of people that have infertility, and it's known as uh, the, the, main, the one place that's the center for all uh, halachas related to infertility. They're really the, uh, the masters of these areas of halachas. So thank you, Rasegulman. Okay, Shakaya, thank you very much for having me, for being invited back to Big Schloss. <coughs> I appreciate it. Um, my name is, as you heard, is Elon Siegelman. I live in Queens. Uh, I'm a rabbi in Queens. I have a shul in Kew Gardens Hills, and, uh, and I work for Pua. Who, as, uh, as Rabbi Orley mentioned, is an organization that uh, deals with all different types of shilas that has anything to do with reproductive health, fertility, infertility, pregnancy, high-risk pregnancy, pregnancy loss. Just yesterday, I got a shila. Um, I got a shila from a woman who is irreligious. She's religious. She's she said she's um, Masorti. She's traditional. She's Israeli lives in California, she's married to someone who's irreligious, and they just found out that they're expecting a uh, Down syndrome baby. Unfortunately, this is their first pregnancy, she's 15 weeks expecting, she just found out that the baby is Down syndrome. The husband said we have to terminate, and he will not think twice about it. The answer is termination, they have to have an abortion. She called me crying, she said, I, you know, whether it's a religious thing or not a religious thing, I feel like I'm the mother, I feel like I have an achrayas, a responsibility to protect my baby, my husband wants to terminate. I don't want to. What am I supposed to do? Not, like, I, don't, I, was, I wasn't exactly sure how to handle that, Shiloh. I mean, she, usually people call for a head, so they want to know, is it mutter in this case? She, she's saying, I don't want to. I want you to say it's usher because she feels like it's wrong. But that's a complicated question. But, um, but really, all questions that have to do with anything, with taras and mishpacha, pregnancy, fertility, infertility, all comes to poor, and, and really we have uh, really fantastic fantastic shilas that come our way and good connections with Rabbanim all over the world that we discuss these shilas with. And it's a privilege for me to be here and just tell you a little bit about the questions that we get as an organization, but really the questions that we get very often are from Rabbanim, because Rabbanim also get these questions. Uh, very often, a Rav, although he is um, not necessarily trained in these inyanim, but Balabatim will come, and they'll come with questions, and sometimes the questions are very, very... Uh, complicated and sophisticated questions, and the point of this year is not to make everyone into experts, fertility experts, knowing how to pass in all of these shilas, but to be aware of the shilas that are out there, to be familiar with the different shitos, the different poskim, and the background, some of the background behind the shilas, so that you can be a better uh, representative of your balabas if you're asking one of the Gedoli Yisrael, if you're calling Pua, you're calling your own Rabbi Shechter, Rabbi Willich, Rabbi Orlin, whoever you are in touch with, it's always good to have more knowledge, and hopefully, Be'ezus Hashem, at the end of this year, will be a little bit, um, will be uh, in a better place, more knowledgeable, have a better understanding of what's out there, what people are going through, and what the halachic uh, predicaments are that they face. So just a little bit of background when it, comes, <coughs> when it comes to infertility. So we have a medical definition of what is infertility. This, the, this uh, definition, based on the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, that's the, that's the main um, that's the main organization of uh, doctors and the professionals in the world. They have decided that, pregnant, that infertility is the inability to achieve a pregnancy and a live birth within a 12-month window of unprotected intercourse. Sometimes that manifests in the fact that the woman just doesn't get pregnant. They're trying to have, uh, they're trying to have a baby, unprotected intercourse, <coughs> and it's just not, she's not getting pregnant. Sometimes the way it manifests 
is that a woman will get pregnant, but she has what's called recurrent miscarriages. It's also a very unfortunate and a difficult situation where a woman will have a miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage, so she, wouldn't have, she doesn't have any problem getting pregnant, but maintaining the pregnancy does not allow her to have a live birth. That, too, is considered um, infertility. And how many couples, out of how many couples would we say, uh, would we experience some type of infertility issue? How, how frequent do you think it is? What are the statistics? What are the one in three. One in three, that's, that's a lot. It's, you're not so far off, but one, one every seven. One out of every seven couples will have some type of infertility challenge, whether it's primary infertility, which means that in the beginning they can't get pregnant with their first child. Very often we have, we have shy words, we have questions. Coming from couples, they had one child, and they can't have a second child. Right? Yesterday I got a question from a woman who was who literally, she was crying, she got, I can't have a baby. I said, well, you know, we were talking, it was, it was apparent that she had other children at home. I said, how many children do you have? She says, I have four, but I still I can't get pregnant with a fifth. And I spoke to Hasidish couples, and they get upset because they can't have number eight. So it's, you know, everything is a matter of perspective, but at a, at a certain point, sometimes the next child, whatever it is, uh, it does not come as, as easily as, as was planned. That would be called secondary infertility. But approximately one out of seven couples experience a challenge with infertility. So that was after one year, as we said, of unprotected intercourse. And that just, we're not going to go into this very, you know, in depth, but just to consider, is this in line with halacha's definition of infertility? Medicine defines infertility as one year, right? One year, and I should say, I didn't have this in the slide, we'll get to it soon, but one year up until a certain age. We know that as a woman gets older, her fertility declines, her ability to have a child becomes um, lower and lower. So up until the age of 35, let's say, a woman within the first year, well, that would be considered a problem of infertility. It's actually a disease. <coughs> it's been recently uh, coined as a disease, not just as, a, as, a, as an unfortunate situation. It's actually considered a disease medically, and all the medical nafkamin is there. But what about halacha? What about halacha? Halacha speaks about a couple that's not married for 10 years, right? Send the Gemara over there in Yevamis. It has a whole discussion of what they can do, what they can't do, get divorced, ksuba, no ksuba. Fine, but it doesn't seem like the conversation gets off the ground uh, before 10 years. So whether or not that really has um, modern day relevant applications, we'll have to see. But something to consider. Something to consider. And we'll lean out and get back to this point a little bit later. So what are some common causes of infertility in, uh, amongst um, men, amongst women? Age. Age is one of the hardest um, ingredients, the most difficult ingredients in this whole cholent, this whole complicated situation, because it's inevitable. You can't stop a woman from getting older. You can't stop a man from getting older, but primarily women. You can't stop women from getting older. And as women get older, their egg quality right, declines. And as the egg quality declines, it makes it harder and harder to have children. We know that when a woman is born, when a baby girl is born, she's born with all of the eggs that she will ever have, right? Men have sperm, and we produce and we reproduce sperm. <coughs> Women do not produce and reproduce eggs. When a, when a baby girl is born, she's born with all of her eggs that she will ever have. When she's postmenopausal, when she's a bubby, and she's no longer having her periods, and she no longer has any eggs in her, in her ovaries, so that's because the ovarian reserve has been depleted. She has no more eggs, and the body never creates more. So the way the number of eggs that a woman's born with is the number. As they get older, 
the number becomes fewer and fewer, as well as the quality becomes lower and lower, making it more difficult for a woman to, um, to conceive. This is especially significant and relevant as the Shidduch crisis doesn't seem to um, curtail, doesn't seem to, uh, to be getting any better. So women are getting older, and some women are getting married at a later age. And as women are getting married at a later age, they're looking to start their family, not in their 20s, but in their 30s, and sometimes in their 40s. And when you're dealing with a woman in your kahila, or with a woman that comes to you for advice, and she's, she's 38 years old, right, she's starting to, 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 she wants to begin having a family, she may experience hardship and difficulty trying to begin that family because she's dealing with 38-year-old eggs, as opposed to a couple that gets married when they're 22, 23, and the 23-year-old eggs, which are very different than 33-year-old eggs, which are certainly different than 43-year-old eggs. So it's something to keep in mind. We're not going to talk today about um, different egg options. There's a whole, a whole other topic about egg freezing, but I guess it's something to keep in mind that single girls, as they get older and they don't see that they're getting married anytime soon, and there's a big debate about you know, specifically, uh, you know, how, how old should a woman be when, when she decides to freeze her eggs, but there is a science which recently went from experimental to mainstream science, to mainstream pr- protocol, in which a woman will actually f- freeze her eggs as a single girl, she'll go into the fertility clinic, she'll take, harvest the eggs and freeze them, and that way when she, wa- when she gets married, hopefully she won't have to use those eggs, but if she gets married and she's unable to have children naturally because her own egg the quality of her own eggs are, are just simply uh, insufficient, or it's or it's not not um, you know just just not viable. So then she's able to tap into her frozen eggs and fertilize that with a husband's sperm, and then have a baby. And we can talk about that soon. Yeah. Um, with the one in seven uh, infertility, is that primary, like the first kid, or is that any? Time? I think it's any. So then, uh, then it's really but, far off. I mean, really, because once you have a couple of kids, yes, it is infertility, but no, at some point, doesn't that's it true. just age that's from menopause? That, that's true. No, that, that's a good point. So in terms of the statistics, I, I, I would imagine that the basic, the, the basic number of one in seven would, would be definitely primary, but, but in terms of how co- it's probably even more common to have secondary infertility, not because, and I'm not talking about something unreasonable. So it is primary. I think it, it, it would be primary in terms of those statistics, I think. You're making a good point. Okay, in ter- I respond to the point. Yeah. As long as they're trying. It seems the average American, they're not necessarily trying. We're, no, right, but, but, but once, uh, yeah, that's a good point. But, but I'm saying, but once you introduce a woman in her 40s, you know, getting upset right. because she's not having a, they're not pregnant, so that, that obviously is not going to, and it be is, is that, that's not going to right. enter those statistics. It's going to totally throw everything off. But, but in terms of how common it is, secondary infertility is, is very common, and it's actually, psychologically, somewhat more difficult than primary infertility. Primary infertility, women are upset, men are upset because they're unable to have a child, and they realize that there is an issue. So there's an issue, and they get upset about it, and they get frustrated, and it's a difficult situation to deal with. Secondary infertility, although you could have a svara to say, why, why, are you being so, why are you so upset? You have a child at home. Be happy with what you have. But psychologically... Speaking to couples who are suffering from secondary infertility, it's a little bit more painful because they don't understand why they're experiencing this hardship. Hooray, they have a baby. They have a baby already. So they know things are working, right? My body's working. He's fine. I'm fine. So why should I have any issue with infertility? I already have a child to prove it. And yet, I'm still going through this 
horrible experience of trying to get pregnant and unsuccessful and simply unsuccessful. So, in, from a psychological perspective and, and from a chizik perspective, when couples really need the most chizik, very often it's it's when they're it's when they're suffering through secondary infertility, and not necessarily primary. Okay, so here are three very common. Um, three very common scenarios in which a woman will present having an issue with fertility, and it's very often one of these three things. Is anyone familiar with PCOS? PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome, and it's an extremely common uh, it's a very, it's an occurrence amongst Ashkenazi women, amongst women in general, but amongst Ashkenazi women, <coughs> where uh, they have poly, what's called polycystic uh, ovarian cysts. It sounds complicated, but it's pretty simple. Basically, and we'll just explain it just for a few moments and then we'll get into more halakhic discussions, but PCOS is just so common you'll hear it, uh, it, it will come up. Uh, PCOS is when on the women's ovaries, they have what's called cysts. They look like cysts, but they're a lot of little eggs. As we said, all of the eggs that a woman uh, is, it will ever have, she's born with, so they're all in the ovaries. And they're all in the ovaries. And um, every month, those eggs are matured, some of them are matured, and then only one will be the victorious egg, which will be uh, shot out of the ovary, right, to hopefully become fertilized. What's that process called when it's shot out of the ovary? Ovulation. Very good, ovulation. That's when the egg is shot out of the ovary and hopes to be fertilized by the sperm. So usually the way it works is that one egg gets big enough, gets large enough for ovulation to occur with that one egg. However, if there's a lot of little, little eggs, so then all of them get mature, but none develop fully, and since none actually develop fully, ovulation is not able to occur. Not, not, there's no single egg which is mature enough to leave the body. So the muscle that <coughs> the doctors normally give is if you have a traffic jam, you have a lot of cars on the street, uh, on, on the road, so you have a lot of cars, and what happens when there are a lot of cars? So no one goes very quickly. So there are a lot of cars, there's a lot of traffic, and when there's a lot of traffic, everyone's going very slowly, so you have these eggs, there are a lot of eggs, and none of them actually uh, mature enough for their for ovulation to take place, and the woman does not ovulate. So that's an extremely common cause of infertility. Why is it relevant to a rov? So you, get, you might get a whole, a whole number of questions. Let's say a woman has PCOS, so that she doesn't ovulate, and she would need, in order to get pregnant, she would need to take medication to induce ovulation. So very often we get to Shiloh. <coughs> Someone is going out, uh, a girl is going out, and she knows that she has PCOS, and I'll tell you in a, in a minute how she knows, but she's a single girl, and she wants to know, is that something, is that information that she has to disclose in Shidduchim? Right? She has this PCOS. She has an issue. Right? It is going to prevent her from having children easily. Not having children, but having children easily. She may, she may experience hardship. So is that information that has to be disclosed for Shiduchim, or is that something that she can keep private and uh, when she gets married, then she'll let her husband know that she may need to take some medication in order to get pregnant, but that's not something that has to be disclosed, has to be shared, lest it, uh, lest it break the Shiduch. What do you say, Rabbanim? So it may depend on how common it is, it may depend on how, uh, how burdensome or how difficult it is. Many poskim have ruled that PCOS is something which is so common that it doesn't even need to be disclosed for shidduchim. It's something which is bechlal, something so regular, something so regular, something which is so common that if a husband were to hear about it, it's okay, fine. There's a, it's a little challenge, it has to be uh, has to be dealt with, but it's not something which is uh, so 
so heavy, so to speak, they would have to be disclosed. Yeah. <clears throat> would it matter how much the the pills are? How like, are they expensive? No, 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 really not. It's, 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 it's never in the Charlotte. It's just no. Okay, PCOS. What are the some of the most common um, um, symptoms? Uh, of PCOS, how, do we, how does a woman know that she has PCOS? The, the, the biggest one is that she has very irregular periods. So if a woman doesn't have a period every 28 days, 29 days, 30 days, but instead she has a period every 37 days, every 40 days, every 45 days, some women don't get a period at all. Some women get a period twice a year, three times a year, four times a year. So that's a very irregular cycle, <coughs> in which case that's a common indicator. Not, it's not... Uh, it's not a raya mukhrachas, but it's a common indicator that a woman has PCOS. Sometimes they're a little bit heavier. Sometimes they have a little bit of facial hair. Um, that, that is, again, it's an extremely common thing. If you hear about it, you don't have to go crazy. If you're, I don't know who's married here, who's, who's, uh, I don't know who's married, who's not. If you, if you find out that your girlfriend, Carla, wife, whoever it is, daughter, has PCOS, it's not something to, to go crazy about. As we said, many, many rabbanim have passed in that you don't even have to disclose it for shidduchim. And it's something that many, many women uh, have had children with PCOS. Yeah. Um, wait, is, is there a way to actually test for it, or do we just say? There's a way. That... There's ways to test for it. Whether it's just, it's a bunch of things together. It's the, it's the irregular periods. It's high testosterone. So it's just by exclusion. Then. There's a, it's hard to diagnose, but basically right. they so look it's... at three things. They look at testosterone levels. They look at uh, irregular cycles, and they look at a, a transvaginal ultrasound to see whether they actually have follicles. A lot of them on the ovary. Uh, endometriosis is when the endometrium, which is the uterine lining, right, it's supposed to stay put. It's supposed to be where it's supposed to be. But sometimes it leaves. Sometimes it actually leaves the uterus, the uterine area, and it goes out into the rest of the woman's body. It can be extremely painful, and, um, and it could, make, it could, pre, it could pre, present issues when it comes to fertility. If a woman has a period, and her period is incapacitating, some, some women have these periods that actually require them to stay in bed. Right? Most women, they have a period, so it's annoying, it's uncomfortable, but they go to work, they carry out their day-to-day lives, but, um, but they, they, might, they manage, they function. <coughs> Some women have to take off from work, go into bed, they literally are incapacitated. That is a telltale sign of endometriosis, and endometriosis has to be dealt with sometimes surgically, and it can prevent um, uh, pregnancy. Uh, I recently spoke to a woman and she said, I, she found out that she had endometriosis. She said, I had no idea. I said, how, you know, how did you not know you had endometriosis? You, you, every time you had a period, you had to call your boss, you had to take off from work. Didn't you realize that that's not normal? She said, no, of course not. That's exactly what my mother did. So my mother also had, her mother also had endometriosis. So what is she, her mother taught her, and her mother didn't really have, a, have a, a good sense of it. So her mother taught her that when you get your period, you have to get into bed, and you're in bed for 24 hours, 48 hours, and you have to be on motion and time all around the clock, and something which is not normal. And, and, and she, she really had no idea, but that's the way that she was taught, that's the way she was raised from her mother. Okay, so it's not so, so common, but it's certainly out there. Endometriosis is a machlokas. I've asked Rabbanim, different Rabbanim, about endometriosis, whether you have to tell for Shaduchim. Some Rabbanim say no, because it can be treated hormonally. Other Rabbanim say it is pretty significant. As a woman gets her period, she has to be in bed the whole day for two days, three days. That's something significant. That's something a person would want to know. So maybe for endometriosis, we're a little bit more machmer in terms of not being able to keep that silent. Might be at, a, at the right time, you may have to disclose that information. Early ovulation... <coughs> is an extremely, extremely common Shiloh. It happens maybe once a day, maybe twice a day, um, that we get a Shiloh of a woman suffering from early ovulation. 
Raise your hand if you've gone through Hilchas Nida. So we know that... Uh, Rabbi you went through Hilchas Nida. You raise your hand? Yeah. Good. So we know that when a woman uh, has her period, she becomes a Nida, she has to get to the mikvah. In order to be Tahirul Bailah, she needs to go to the mikvah. Right? But we also know that as her Nida cycle, as her Nida cycle is uh, progressing, she also has a menstrual cycle, a reproductive cycle, which is progressing. And as she's waiting her Zayinikim, and as she is abstaining from all physical touch, but for, for, for today's shear, she's, she's not having relations, she's not having the, uh, the opportunity to fertilize any eggs. So as that's happening, so her body's also producing that egg. And the body's getting ready for ovulation and for the woman to theoretically get pregnant. Now, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, the two systems work out usually pretty well, usually pretty in sync. When, is, when does ovulation occur? So medically speaking, scientifically speaking, if you have a, uh, and we'll talk about this in a, in, a, in a little bit, but if you have a 28-day cycle, right, ovulation is normally going to take place on day 14. So there's always 14 days before the onset of the next period. So let's say you have a 28-day cycle, she's going to ovulate on day 14. You have a 30-day cycle, means you have a flug of 30 days, she's getting a period every 30 days, she's going to ovulate on day 16. Basic math, yeah? It's not even as complicated as Vestos. But then, what happens when you have an issue where a woman ovulates early, right? Instead of getting to the mikvah on day 12, maybe sometimes she gets to the mikvah on day 14, day 15 or 14, 15, uh, 14 or 15, whatever, she gets to the mikvah late, and the ovulation is occurring maybe a little bit early, so by the time she gets to the mikvah and she's together with her husband, she has already ovulated. And since she's already ovulated, she will have no further opportunity to get pregnant that month. And month after month, month after month, she goes to the mikvah and to the mikvah and to the mikvah, month after month. But she, she, she could easily be ovulating before she gets to the mikvah. And she will not get pregnant because of uh, this early ovulation issue. We're going to discuss it a little bit more because it's very common. Okay, black fallopian tubes, sometimes people have it. Autoimmune, you know, we'll see a picture soon. Sometimes the tubes are blocked. Autoimmune disorders, uh, sometimes the body, so this is very sad, the body, in order to protect ourselves in general, so the body produces antibodies to fight off germs, to fight off foreign objects in the body. Sometimes there is a mixed messaging system, and uh, something in the system, and the body gets mixed messages. It understands and thinks that the fetus is actually a foreign uh, item, a foreign object, and that of a germ of something or a virus has to be destroyed. And every time a woman would get pregnant and start to develop the fetus, the body will actually attack the fetus. And the woman very often on these autoimmune issues, sometimes we're able to overcome it with, with certain th- medicinal therapies, but sometimes they need to go with a surrogate or something like that because they're simply unable to carry the baby as the body will, as long as the baby's there, the body will produce these antibodies to kill the baby. Could okay. that autoimmune disorder be, is it, does it only reject a fetus or could it also reject the valzera? There are, That's what I mean. so there are, I don't, think, I don't think the woman's body, there is a condition, I don't think, of, I don't think it's the woman's issue, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think it's the woman's issue, there is a, man, a male issue, um, there is a male issue where the husband's sperm, he can produce antibodies against his sperm. Meaning he, in his, he can have healthy sperm, but then his body will basically reject his sperm 
and kill his sperm. So by the time he's trying to have relations and he's mimotzi zera, the zera is actually not healthy, not viable, because of the antibodies that he creates. But I'm not sure if she uh, creates antibodies that will kill uh, his zera. There is a condition that I, you know, it's surprising I get it quite often. There is a condition that the woman is allergic to the husband's sperm. There is a condition where the the woman is allergic to the husband's sperm. That's not really an infertility issue. I think they can get pregnant, but it's a painful issue because she develops rashes and very uh, serious reactions to the sperm when it's when, when it's when the husband is moitzizera in the isha. Um, so I don't think that that affects infertility. That just becomes extremely extremely uncomfortable. And the shaila is, what do you do with such a shaila? How are you how are you supposed to deal with uh, a case? Okay, I don't know if this is the right forum to discuss it, but there are some poskim that are matir a condom. Uh, I once spoke to Rabbi Willig about this. Rabbi Willig had some. He had an interesting. Uh, he had an interesting mahalos to try to cut the top of the condom because, again, it really only affects when it's unusually on the outside of the body, and sometimes. But once it's all the way inside, it usually it's usually not a problem. So he tried to come up with a way that if you cut the top of the condom and you and you and you had kind of like block off the peripheral not allowing the zera to, to reach anywhere, but kind of directly escort the zera as far up as possible. So he said that that would be the, try to be the best, the best mahalach in such a scenario try, to try to alleviate any pain and that the woman shouldn't have any reaction to the zera. But uh, it, it does happen. I think Rav David Kohn told me he wrote a tshuva to the Tzitzel about the Shiloh, and the Tzitzel responded that he matured a condom for such a case like Rav Chaim Oizer, that if that's the scenario, <laughs> if that's the situation, uh, this was the exact Shaila and Shuva that uh, David Kohn wrote to the Tzitzel and Tzitzel responded that uh, under these, under these uh, conditions it would be permissible. Uh, Avericacil is one of the most common, we've been speaking up until now about female infertility, Avericacil is one of the most common, uh, common causes for male infertility as we'll see in the next slide, I think it's the next slide, that man, male infertility is actually as common as female infertility. It used to be understood and uh, taken as a dover pashut that infertility is a women's issue, right? It was never thought that the man could ever be at fault. However, recent studies are showing that it's equal to. Male infertility is equal to female infertility. One-third of all cases of infertility are female factor, one-third of all cases are male factor, and one-third of infertility are somewhere either in between, either completely unexplained, or the shidduch themselves is just not a good shidduch. We had a case in Pua not too long ago, Hasidim, they were married for 10 years, didn't have any children, they decided to get divorced. Not that that's the halacha, look in the first Ramah in Ebenezer, right, right in the beginning of Ebenezer, the Ramah writes that the minog nowadays is not to get divorced, even if a couple is not successful having children after 10 years. But this couple, they decided to, they wanted to get divorced. Within the year, they both remarried. He married another woman. She married another man. And within the year, they both had baby, where they were both pregnant. Meaning, for whatever reason, they, the couple themselves, couldn't, couldn't uh, produce a baby. But with, other, with, another, uh, with another partner, they were. This is a hashkavik shayla that we get very often. So if you're not able to have children with that couple, right, so does that mean that that's not your zivug? When do we get to Shiloh all the time? Anyone want to take a stab at it? We don't have so much time, so I'll give you three seconds. Two, one. So, so that... doesn't match? Oh, very good. Right, right in the bottom of the ninth. You got it. So yeah, when Dorian doesn't match, couple calls, 
they, they're about to get engaged. This happens, unfortunately, way too often, where people don't uh, look into their genetic uh, testing. They don't confirm genetic testing, genetic compatibility before it gets too serious, even before they go out or before it gets too serious. And now the couple is waiting to get engaged. They're trying to figure out a date, trying to get here back from the hall. Is Eden Palace open? Is this place open? And they say, you know, before we hear back from Eden Palace, let's just run the numbers. They run the numbers, and sure enough, they're both carriers of Tay-Sachs, they're both carriers of cystic fibrosis, they're both carriers of familial dysentinomia. We just had it two weeks ago. A couple, one, he's from Brooklyn, she's from Lakewood. They literally ready, ready to get engaged. They've just found out from Doyle Sharm that they are carriers of a very, very severe genetic disease. And they ask the Hashkafic questions, does this mean that we're not meant to be? Like, we're ready to get engaged tomorrow. Does this mean that we're not meant to be? I don't know. Hashem doesn't, uh, Hashem doesn't give me access to the books. I have no clue. We can talk about it, and it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a very important shiloh because it happens all the time. I speak to every Wulig. He has his opinion of Shechtev. You know, Rabbanim have, have their opinions, how to, how to go about this case. <coughs> but it's a, it's a serious issue. Um, Verikasil. Verikasil is, again, as I said, one of the most common male factor uh, contributors to infertility. A verikasil is when you have a varicose vein. Varicose veins is a, a, uh, a vein in the scrotum a, where the blood vessels allow too much blood. There's too much blood flow in the scrotum. And the significance of that is it produces an intense amount of heat. And we know that heat kills sperm. Right? We, we're familiar with this. That's why Hashem, with His infinite wisdom, He created it that the male genitalia was outside the body, female is inside the body, right? a woman's ovaries are inside and a man's testicles are outside the body because the heat of the body would, be, would not allow for the sperm to... <coughs> To, um, to exist, to produce, and to, to be maintained healthily. So therefore, the, uh, we know that heat can destroy sperm. So when there is too much blood flow in the scrotum around the testicles, that creates too much heat, kills the sperm, and it does not allow for a husband to get his wife pregnant because the sperm is not viable, it is killed. So what you have to do is, uh, usually it's a very small procedure, just to remove uh, the, the excess veins, to minimize it, to minimize the blood flow back to normal, and then the heat level goes down, and then the husband, within the year, hopefully can start having, uh, producing sperm, normal sperm, and have children naturally. don't need to do anything, anything more than that. That's, by the way, one of the most common causes of secondary infertility that we spoke about before. Why should it be, Taka, that a, a couple are successful having their first child, but when it comes to their second child, they're unsuccessful? Why should that be? So one of the answers, <coughs> one of the most common reasons for that is because of varicocele. In other words, when they first started having children, right, it could be that there was a varicocele there, that the husband, in fact, had a varicocele, but the degree of the varicocele wasn't so intense, it didn't really kill the majority of the sperm, right, but it was still there. Then the woman gets pregnant for nine months as a baby, she nurses for a year, so maybe it's now a year and a half, two, two and a half years later, where they're trying to get pregnant, let's say two years later, they're trying to get pregnant, and meanwhile, it's not going. How come it's not going? It doesn't make any sense. Well, I, I can explain it. If there was a small varicocele there that has only been getting bigger and has only been impacting the sperm negatively, so two years later, of course, there's going to be a decrease in sperm level and sperm production. So that could be really the, one of the main issues for secondary infertility. <coughs> Recurrent miscarriages we spoke to, we spoke about, 
uh, just briefly, it's a very uh, sensitive and difficult parsha, as well as genetic abnormalities. It's important to to uh, be aware of the different ge- genetic abnormalities that people uh, that people have, which do contribute to uh, infertility. Does anybody know any any of these three? Are any familiar with the three ones that, that I have here? The three genetic diseases: Turner syndrome, fragile X, or Rakitansky. Familiar with them? So Rakitansky is getting the most is now the most popular because. Well, that's the one I don't know. Oh, Rakitansky is becoming the most popular now because of all of the discussion with uterine transplants. That's like the new, the new, uh, the new hot topic in fertility. They're taking uh, u- uterus, a uterus from either a dead or a live donor, and they're transplanting it to another woman. Uh, for a woman who doesn't have a uterus, can now actually have her own pregnancy, as as it used to be in the past. If a woman didn't have a uterus, so she would have to have hire a surrogate to carry her baby. Now she can even get pregnant herself with a uterine transplant. I was actually at a correspondence this morning with a, the Cleveland Clinic. They actually did their, they, they successfully did a few uterine transplants in America. Only a few places in America have done it. So Rakitansky is when a woman is, bo- is born without a uterus. She pushes does not have a uterus. I got a call from a, from a lady in England a few months ago. Actually, the father, she was getting married. She was getting married, and the father called. Baruch Hashem, she was getting, it's amazing, she got engaged. I don't, I don't know what the husband had. I don't know what what Pekel, the, the, the chassin, was coming into the marriage with. But this Kala didn't have a uterus. So the father called an amazing Shiloh. He said, my daughter's getting married. She doesn't have a uterus. <coughs> Does she have Dan Besulim? Does, is, is her, you know, do we say that uh, she, she's never had a period, right? So all of the Shilohs of Dan Besulim, the Shilohs of Dan Chimud, right? We know that a week before the wedding, right, even if she never had a period, she's still a nida, right? Because of that rov is din of dam chimur. When a woman gets excited, so maybe she's going to bleed. So this woman never got a period. Do we say that she has dam chimur? You know, as kena, as kena, let's say you have a zivik sheni. Someone gets married at 70, 80, 90, right? Alta Bubi gets married. She gets married again, right? She hasn't gotten a period in 30 years. The halacha is, is dam chimur. She's got to go to the mikvah again, even if, she, even if she's totally tahora. She hasn't gotten a period in 30 years, and, and, she, and she, she went to mikvah before she ended. So she's taira. Nonetheless, she has to go back. So she's asking all these shilohs about dam chimah, dam besulim. How do we treat this woman without a uterus? But women can be born without a uterus. Women can be born with only 45 chromosomes. She's missing that 46 chromosome of, 40, of XX, which makes a woman uh, uh, into a girl. So she's missing that last X, so very often they don't have eggs. <coughs> Fine. What was the answer that was given in that case? So there's actually a tshuva in Sheva Halevi. Vosner writes about it, and he writes that she's totally mufka from the parish of Nida. So Vosner, I believe, I believe in his tshuva, he writes that there is no dam chimur and there is no dam Total Nothing, nothing at all. <coughs> this we spoke about just to show you clearly how male and female infertility is, uh, is up there in terms of the numbers, 33 and 33%. It's that 33, which is ambiguous, that other 33%, which we don't really know about, but, uh, but, but just to know that it, it, is a, it is definitely a male issue as much as a female issue. Okay, just to briefly... Um, I don't want to bore you with, uh, with too much science, but just to briefly go into this a little bit. <clears throat> it's important to know that there's a process that goes on. There's a process that goes on in the body when a woman has her period. And I think if it's just for, 
for just for one shaila, just to deal with one shaila, I think it's kedai just to get three minutes of basic science, basic background to help us understand and deal with a, a very significant problem, and that's the problem of early ovulation, because it, it really is a common problem. Women really do ovulate before they go to the mikvah. How do we help women who ovulate before we go to the mikvah? Right? How do we help them? So let me let me just <coughs> share with you an insight that one of the from doctors, I believe he's from Canada, McGill. Um, his name is Mike, Dr. Mike Dahan. Anyone from Montreal? Anyone know Mike Dahan? I met him at a, at a medical conference a few years ago. He's a very nice guy, from guy. And he came up with a, a brilliant chap. A real Yiddish cup. Baruch Hashem. So Mike Dahan had the following observation. There are many women that are going to the mikvah too late. They're ovulating before. He said that we need to find a solution to help these women get pregnant even though they're ovulating before mikvah. Can you just point out what happens if a woman ovulates too... Too early? Too early. So what happens when a woman ovulates too early is that she'll lose out on the, the opportunity to have any fertilized egg. Once a woman ovulates, and we're going to see this clearly, once a woman ovulates, then she misses that window of, of uh, fertilization. So then for the rest of the month, even if she's not bleeding and there's nothing, right, she has no chance of getting pregnant. She can be together with her husband from today until tomorrow. If it's past ovulation, there will not be a successful pregnancy at all. So it's a, it's a pretty significant issue if the woman who is being tovelas, she's getting to mikvah and only having the opportunity to be together with her husband is taking place after ovulation because they really do not have the chance of getting pregnant. And it's very unfortunate. I spoke to a, a woman last week she is from uh, California. Her sister is living in. Uh, she's living in Maryland. And the sister can't have any children. She's too old. She's forty-four. Her eggs are not viable anymore. She can't have her own children. So what was the Shiloh? The Shiloh was she wants to give her own eggs to her sister. She wants to give her eggs to her sister. She's younger. She wants to give her eggs to her sister, and all of the halachic. Uh, ramifications that come from this Shiloh of giving your eggs, donating eggs, and what's, who's the mother? Is it the egg mother or the birth mother? It could be that if the egg mother is the mother, so then the baby is going to be from her... It, it could be a mom's or it could be, you know, you know her, her sister-in-law having relations. It's not going to be physical. There's not going to be any physical intimacy, but the baby is going to be a product of a, of a, of a brother and a sister-in-law. So very complicated case. I, uh, I spoke to Rav Shechter about it last week. He was not happy with it. But anyway, at the end of the conversation, she commented, why am I telling you this? Not only because it's fascinating, but because she commented at the end and she said, it's so unfortunate, you know, I think that my sister has short cycles and she misses her ovulation. So the reason why she hasn't had a baby all these years is just because she hasn't been getting to the mikvah on time. And it's so sad. Like, she just, like, commented off the cuff, like, you know, just like it's such a sad situation. Yeah, that is a horrible, it's a, it's a very, very sad situation because... We can fix it. There are, you know, there are ways to fix that issue. It's an, it's an unfortunate situation, but it's not, uh, it's not one that hasn't been solved. So I just want to tell you that it is very common, and a rav, those of us who are, those of you who are, are entering the rabbanos, if you see a couple coming back month after month after month with shilas and with nida shilas and with maros and the, every month. Right? And sometimes you ask them, you, sh- you should ask them, you should, you know, especially if you have a good relationship with them, you ask them, you know, I see you here every month, you know, 
what, what, depending on when they're dropping off the bedika cloths, are they dropping off too late? If uh, you know, if or if they're not dropping off bedika cloths, and maybe maybe the fact that they're not dropping off bedika cloths, so maybe you want them to drop off bedika cloths because maybe they're being too machmer on themselves; they're not getting to the mikvah on time. We can talk about that in a moment. But let me just tell you about the science so we understand how we can easily help women who are going through this issue of early ovulation. So in, in Mamish layman's uh, description of, of the way this works is that the brain has, pr- produces a hormone called FSH. FSH stands for, I'll give anyone $2 if they can tell me what it stands for without Googling it. Close, but I don't have to give it. I'm done. Follicle-stimulating hormone. The follicle-stimulating hormone. Okay? Follicle-stimulating hormone. And that's what... Kishmoi kenhu. It's the follicle-stimulating hormone. The follicles are... The, the eggs that are in the ovaries. The brain tells the ovaries to start producing eggs. To start maturing the eggs for that month. What happens is when the uh, FSH starts to... Starts the, the activity in the... Uh, in the ovary, so the way the ovary tells the FSH, tells the brain to shut off the FSH valve is by producing estrogen. So what happens in the cycle, it's very simple. Brain produces FSH to tell the ovaries to start working, and when the ovaries are starting to work, and they want to tell the brain, you can stop sending FSH, the ovaries let out estrogen, and the heightened levels of estrogen in the body tell the brain, okay, we can stop working now. Simple enough? Everyone have that? So Mike Dahan had a gewaldic observation. He said, the more estrogen in the body, the less FSH. The more FSH, the less estrogen. So he had the, chab, the following chab. He said, why don't we, with all these women that are ovulating before the mikvah, why don't we give them, at the very beginning of their cycle, give them pills to raise the level of estrogen in the body. Give them estrogen pills, estrogen supplements. So once we give them estrogen supplements and their estrogen goes up, right, What's, go- what's not going to be produced? Kozman, that there's a lot of estrogen? FSH. So the brain does not produce FSH if there's a lot of estrogen. So Mike Dahan says, Dr. Dahan, he says we should give everyone estrogen in the beginning of their cycle, very beginning of the cycle, okay? The very beginning of the cycle for five days. Then go off the estrogen. When you go off the pills, so then what happens to the estrogen level? It goes down. What happens when your estrogen level goes down? The FSH starts to work. So the FSH is now going to start working. It's going to start pumping up the ovaries. The ovaries are going to start maturing the eggs. And then the whole cycle is going to begin. But what did you just do? You just bought yourself five days. By that time, remember, that system is going on. But at the same time, she's still bleeding, right? She still had her period. She's still bleeding. She's still doing her bedikas. And hopefully she'll get to the mikvah day 12, like she's supposed to, five and seven. But she'll have an additional few days, hopefully five days, that ovulation is going to have been pushed off because she took that estrogen at the very beginning of the cycle. The so, delaying of the ovulation will not affect the bleeding, bleeding of period. Typically not. Typically not. So that is a, a very, very, <coughs> a very, very uh, easy and inexpensive. Uh, sometimes women don't like it because hormones in general women don't like, but okay, sometimes there's no option. But um, that's a very easy way of navigating and, and really circumventing and overcoming the issue of early ovulation. At this point, this is just a picture of what ovulation looks like. With the egg, it gets, starts over here, it matures and matures and matures. This is the ovary. I'm in the ovary. 
Okay, this is the ovary, this is the uterus, this is the cervix. Anyone who learns Al-Qasnidan, here's about a maka, the cervix, that's this area over right over here. Okay, so then, this is the ovary, the eggs are all in here. The eggs produce, they're getting matured, matured, matured. Eventually they get big enough, they get shot out of the, out of the ovary. This is called ovulation. And then meanwhile, the couple has relations, the zera goes up into the tube. The zera has to make its way from here all the way up into the fallopian tube, around here, and it meets, it meets the egg around here, and then the egg gets fertilized in the tube, and then as it gets, devel- as it gets it's developing, it makes its way from the tube into the, into the, uh, into the uterus, and eventually it's hosted by the uterine wall, by the endometrium, and then it develops into a fetus, and then hopefully into a viable fetus, and then there's a baby. So that's the, that's the basic cycle. While all of this is happening, while the eggs are, are getting matured and getting ready for ovulation, the uterine lining is getting thicker and thicker with nutrients because the anticipation is that this, this embryo, this mixture, this fertilized egg, which is called an embryo, will eventually post itself, which will eventually make, its comfort, it make itself comfortable in the uterine wall. So the uterine wall is going to give it the nourishment and the uh, environment that, it's need, that it needs in order to develop healthily. And then when this doesn't happen, if a woman doesn't get pregnant, right? So all of this, the egg, and all of this uterine lining, which was getting all thicker and thicker, leaves the body, and that's what we call a? Period. period. That's a period. So that's the, that's the monthly cycle of a woman's menstrual cycle, of, the, of a woman's machzor, is the maturation of the eggs, ovulation, and eventually the shedding of the endometrium, the uterine lining, if, if a woman does not get pregnant. Yeah. You mentioned before that women with um, uh, PCOS generally do not um, experience periods. No, ovulation. They have very irregular periods. So sometimes they can still, this will, st- the, the uterine lining will still get thicker and thicker. Right. And to the point where it just has to bleed. Right. <laughs> so, but it's, but it's not as, uh, it's not as, as systematic as, <coughs> as a regular. So ovulation, then the this whole, is right. less regular. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And endometriosis, by the way, endometriosis that we spoke about when the women have real heavy periods, so this endometrium actually leaves the body over here, and it's horrible. This uterine lining leaves the body, and it makes its way over here, it makes its way over here, and the significance of it is that when the woman is time for her to have her period, she doesn't just bleed from in here, she bleeds from over here, and over here, and sometimes it can actually make its way up into the abdomen. The woman can have bleeding from all over, because there's part of the uterine lining which is just spreading out into her body, but it was, it's still called the uterine lining. It's still going to give for the blood, and it's very, very painful, and that's, that's what kind of adds to this, this, um, this, this in- state of uh, being incapacitated for the woman, because she's so, just the, the, the bleeding is so heavy. Yeah. The hormone pill um, on the previous thing from, I guess, the doctor, estrogen, the, yeah. the estrogen pill, Yeah. Th- that would be less than a normal... Uh, is I, I imagine that a normal like um, pregnancy pill or a normal birth control. Um, birth control. Birth control is usually estrogen and progesterone, two two hormones together. Uh, usually, you don't take just estrogen. Estrogen is 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 but really it's you don't you don't really take estrogen. On the contrary, either you take both, or you take just progesterone. Let's say when a woman's nursing, uh, when a woman is nursing, so she takes progesterone only. She doesn't take the what's called the mini pill or the progesterone only pill, but there's no estrogen. 
Estrogen is not the, you know, there's some, there, there's some scenarios which it's important that we're not going to go into it, but if women are, are, have some type of cancer or pre-cancer, then estrogen actually is a, is a, is a very dangerous for them to take. That could actually, uh, that could contribute to the, the growth of the cancer. But okay, but estrogen for a few days in, in, in a healthy woman does not have any negative impact. Okay, so we already mentioned the, um, the occurrence of uh, early ovulation. As we know, it's a machlokis. It's hard to understand what exactly the machlokis is, but we, we know that uh, Rabbi Yechman says, so that a woman will ovulate samach to her tevila, right, which is scientifically true. Right? As we said, if she has 28-day cycle, when is she going to ovulate? 14 days before. Right? It's not, 14 days is not because of 28. 14 days is just the mitzvahs. 14 days before the, the anticipated period, that's when she's going to have her cycle. So on a 28-day cycle, 14, she gets to the mikvah on day 12. Beautiful, no? Gorgeous. Well, let's say you have a 21-day cycle. Very short periods. So 21 days, subtract, you take away 14, what do you get? Seven. It's there. Yeah, seven. And there's no way that a woman's going to get to the mikvah before seven, no? Biyutz, biyutz, biyutz is ovulation. So, <coughs> if the biyutz is happening on day seven, but she's not going to get to the mikvah until day twelve, she's going to ovulate here. She's going to be finished with ovulation by day eight. She's going to get to the mikvah on day twelve. There's no chance of her getting pregnant. Or take a scenario where it's not as drastic as twenty-one days, but let's say it's twenty-six. Not so schwer, right? Twenty-six days, short, but it's not crazy. In fact, medically, this is totally normal. Twenty-six days is a normal cycle. Medically, there's no issue. Okay, take 14 away from 16, there's 26, you're going to get 12. 12. That's, that's mamish, cutting it close. Right? If she gets to the mikvah 5 and 7, she gets to the mikvah on day 12, she's going to cut it close. What happens if she bleeds for a little bit longer than 5 days initially? So she's not able to do her hafsiktar on day 5, she's only able to do her hafsiktar on day 6 or day 7. Right? Plus the fact that she has a short cycle, she only gets to the mikvah on day 13 or 14 when her, when her ovulation is only on day 12. It's going to be a problem. Yeah. Now, now, I know that there are ovulation sticks or something that mm-hmm. shows when... Could, could you use that ahead of time to know absolutely. if this would be yeah. an issue? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that would work? It'll work to tell you whether I mean, or not you have it. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, about, what about the situation where women don't necessarily have shorter or long cycles, but they bleed when they ovulate? So bleeding when they ovulate is, is, uh, is minimal. It's minimal bleeding. Mm-hmm. It's not such a big deal. It's not like a flow. Women don't have a flow when they ovulate. Sometimes there'll be a little bit of a little bit of blood, but uh, it's not something which a woman typically feels. It's not something that would render her neither the risa. You know, there are ways to get around it. But, yeah. So how to solve early ovulation? So here are some of the medical, the medical things, medical ways. Clomid and estrogen are two pills. There are some natural, organic things that they can take. Some pills that they could shorten the bleeding, or uh, or or or, um, or to push off the ovulation. And if not, then we're going to have to mention IUI is what we're going to talk about now. But before we talk about IUI, there are some halakhic options that it's important to be aware of. Sometimes a woman is just mamish on the, on the cusp. She's just, she's just missing ovulation. So we know that Ashkenazim, looks like we're all Ashkenazim here, yes? Yeah? Ashkenazim take the Chumrah of the Ramah, the Truma Sadeshen, yes? And we only do a Hepsektar on day five. And then after day five, then we start our Zayin but really, the Machaber disagrees. The Machaber holds that you only need four days. So if you only need four days, so that means theoretically, if a woman stopped bleeding before then, we can get to the mikvah on day 11. 
many Rabbanim, almost all Rabbanim, hold that if there's any little bit of question, the reason why the woman's not getting pregnant is because she's going to the mikvah too late, and if we were to get her to the mikvah even a day earlier, it would be fine. So then, Rabbi Shechter, Rabbi Willi, Rabbi Sabolovsky, Rabbi Neuberger, all told me that it's permissible to go down to day four, that a woman can do a hepsic power on day four, she doesn't have to wait till day five, assuming she can get a clean bedika on day four, that's good to, that she's good to go. Sometimes women get to the mikvah a little bit later because they get messed up throughout the Zayin because they have uh, bad bedikas on day one. She's able to get hepsic tara, but her day one bedika is always bad, or her, let's say her day two bedika is always bad. So if her day two bedika is always bad, so then tell her not to do a bedika on day two. Let's say her day one bedika is bad. Okay, there's some posts that would say, tell her not to do a bedika on day one. Question, are you allowed to skip day one? But, okay, these are questions. Trying to get a woman to the mikvah, sometimes using halacha, <coughs> going with the kulas, to allow for a mikvah to go as early as possible, um, will help us with this issue of early ovulation. Sometimes a woman has a maka, and it's important to, to, to verify the fact and to, and to recognize that there is a maca there which is causing blood and a lot of the blood that she's seeing is not uterine in nature it's only vaginal which would not be damnida and the bodekas women in the community who can check to determine whether or not she has a maca can be very important uh, to help us get to the mikvah on time and call it underwear pads there should be in again to prevent a woman from having to start over her cycle which would then delay mikvah I mentioned here on the left IUI. Anyone know what IUI stands for? Intrauterine insemination. Intrauterine insemination. So intrauterine insemination is one of the is a very very old method of uh, fertility treatment. The the uh, many of the early acronym discuss uh, intrauterine insemination. They don't call it IUI. They call it zurika. Uh, or nowadays it's in Hebrew it's called Hazra Amal artificial insemination, but they call it Zerika in the poskim. It's very simple. You basically take the zera and you inseminate, you deliver it up to the top of the uterus. So why would a person do IUI? So sometimes if it's just unexplained infertility, we don't know why the couple is not having a child. So let's, you know, try to help, help them as much as they can. Maybe sometimes the, there's a male issue. Sometimes the sperm, they're not such good swimmers. So if they're not such good swimmers, if they enter the body over here and then they're expected to swim all the way up, so they're not going to make it. So let's make it easier for them. They'll put them in a tube and we'll be zayrik, inseminate the woman, deliver the sperm right over here, and then it's very little swimming is necessary. Sometimes if a male has, an, has a, has a, um, there's a there's the, if there's a male fertility issue, so sometimes, uh, sometimes <coughs> IUI will help. I have a couple now in Baltimore. Uh, who have this? Who have intimacy issues? Have this problem? I just spoke to the urologist last week. Um, he can't, for whatever reason, he can't be Moses Zara when he's together. It's interesting. He has an issue. He has some erectile dysfunction and some other issues. I was speaking to the urologist about it, but he has a whole slew of issues. But part of his issues is that when he's Mazria, he's not actually Mazria. Nothing comes out. Nothing comes out. And then only after the Aver dies and becomes an Aver mace, after he loses his erection, then the sperm will kind of like just spill out. But he's not able to be Motsi Zera when they're together. So, besides for their intimacy issues that they have to deal with, but the Pasha can't have a child because he's not able to be Motsi Zera inside. He's not even allowed to be, he can't even be Motsi Zera 
around the area, he has to once once it seeps out, then he can try to put it there, you know, manually, but in that area. But they haven't had any hatzlacha. <coughs> so what's the etza for this couple? How is this? How is a couple like this going to have a child? So if we take the sperm and we put it in such a in, in, into a syringe and we in, inseminate, so then we could easily get the sperm into the woman without any uh, without any intercourse. They don't even need the intercourse. And sometimes that helps for neither complications. Sometimes there are cases where a woman just simply is not able to get to the mikvah time for ovulation. It's impossible. I have a woman in LA, and I'm very close with her. She's, we've been speaking very often. She has a lot of issues, but one of her issues is she ovulates on day nine of her cycle. Day nine. Which means in order for her to get to the mikvah on time, she needs to do a hepsectire on day two. So halakhically it's complicated, but physically it's complicated. Sometimes you're simply not finished with your period by day two. It takes four or five days, sometimes even six days or seven days, for the woman just to finish bleeding. So this woman ovulates on day nine. We've ruled, we tried to be as makal as possible, <coughs> but the option is just to take the husband's zera and to inseminate her during, during nidos. It's a machlokas aposkim, if you're allowed to do that, but uh, many poskim do permit in... Uh, in, uh, in, in really shasakak situations. Similar to sperm donation, if a couple has no sperm and they have a psak from their rub, then it's mutter to use a sper- <coughs> sperm donation. So they're going to take the sperm from the donor. How are they going to get into the woman? Through insemination. What happens if that doesn't work? The couple comes to you, they say, Rabbi, we've already done IUI, and now the doctor's telling us we have to do IVF. What are we supposed to do? IVF, is that a mutter? Is it not mutter? What about all the shilas? So what is IVF? Maybe we've heard it, maybe we know what it is already, but in 1978, Louise Brown was born. Louise Brown was the first baby that was born from IVF in which the egg was taken from the ovary, the sperm was taken from the man, they were put together in the lab, and once the embryo was created in the lab, it was then put back <coughs> into Mrs. Brown, and then she, had, she got pregnant, and she gave birth to a woman named Louise Brown. Louise Brown's 41 years old now, and 42 and uh, <clears throat> she's probably 41. And uh, this, was the, this was a tremendous uh, change and advance in, in the reproductive technology when the first baby was born from IVF. But IVF is different than insemination, where insemination, the sperm is, there is, is, is uh, delivered into the woman. Here, it's not the sperm which is being inseminated into the woman, but the entire fertilized embryo is being implanted into the woman. That is IVF. And there's different reasons why a woman would want to do IVF, why a couple would want to do IUI, that we're not going to discuss, but uh, just the cost. An IUI generally costs around $1,000, $2,000. IVF could cost you $20,000. So the success rates are much smaller with IUI, right? The success rates are higher with IVF, but it's, uh, you're paying a lot more money for IVF than you are <coughs> with IUI. IVF is, uh, is a procedure. You have to go under anesthesia. You have to... Uh, you know, it, it's 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 a prepare with a lot of hormones. IUI is much more simple, but anyway, we don't have time to discuss all of the di- the differences between IUI and IVF. <coughs> but IVF and IUI do come with a number of halachic issues, and that's what again, as I said in the beginning, we're not going to be able to come out as poskim as uh, as as being able to rule on these shilas. But it's important for us to know that the shilas exist. So number one, the first two issues, as you see here, Pruvu and Yuchsin. Pruvu, it's a very fundamental shaila. 
When a couple is born through IVF, through IUI, some way that the sperm was delivered into the woman or the embryo was delivered into the woman and the couple did not conceive naturally through regular tashmish, what we call kiderech kol ha'aretz, right? So, are you makayim the mitzvah puruvu in such a fashion? Perhaps the mitzvah puruvu is dependent on a formal maizabiyah, right? And if you have a child who's conceived in other means, through another modes of, uh, of uh, fertilization, something which took place outside of the body and then brought back into the body, maybe you're not a kind of mitzvah of Puravu. Maybe the father is only the father of this child when he's motzi inside of the wife. But if he's motzi outside and the, 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 the embryologist, the technician, takes the zera and combines it with an embryo and puts it back into the wife, maybe he's not even the father. Right? Maybe if a father who's a Kohen, his sperm fertilizes an egg and then it goes back into a woman's body, right? So maybe the child's not a Kohen, Bechlal. Yeah. So, when the Kohen is assigned, I don't tell it's a downside, in other words, if they can't get pregnant, so no matter what, not going to be fulfilled for her So even worse than scenarios, philosophy, it's not considered for her so you're not yet outside. It's, in other words, it's not worse. That's a good, that's a good question. So there is a, a very, so Rabbi Shechter, Shlita, is of the opinion, his key questions whether a couple is Makai Nimitz or Puru Vu, and the Vlad is Misiachis. Not like the Big Shmuel? Not like the Big Shmuel. So Shechter questions that, and I asked him this question, so what, so Mon so either they don't have kids and you're not Makai and Puru Vu, or they're not, or, or, or they have a kid like this. So Cohen, he's, uh, he's concerned about, he told me from Rav Yashavir, from the Rav, that he said that uh, the, Rav, the Rav used to say that the Pasuk is Vikidashto, so the Pasuk is Vikidashto, Kidashto means that you have to uh, honor a Kohen. But he said that beyond the mitzvah of honoring a Kohen, the general mitzvah of Kidashto is the mitzvah to upkeep the lineage of Klal Yisrael, to preserve the Kedusha of, of the Yichsin in Klal Yisrael. And when you have a baby who is not meyuchos, when a baby is not meyuchos, <coughs> so then there's actually, you know, it's not a violation, it's a bitlase of the Kidashto, of that mitzvah that we have to upkeep the Yichsin in Klal Yisrael. What? What is it? The, the lineage, the proper Jewish lineage. In Klal Yisrael, it's, there's a mitzvah to actually not only have children who are miyuchos, because we have because our children are miyuchos after us, but actually there's a mitzvah to see to it that we preserve the, the lineage, to preserve, to preserve the lineage of Klal Yisrael. There are other issues also. The Rav Shechter is machmer, that maybe a Kohen can't marry someone who's not miyuchos. So if a woman, if a girl is born from... If a girl is born from any of these things, then she's Aser Lekohen, not like Rav Moshe. This is Rav Shechter's opinion. Uh, Rabbi Willig told me that Rav Shechter is an Adam Gadol, and, and, but, but we don't, we don't pass him like Rav Shechter. Rav Willig was very you know, clear about that. Rav Shechter is an Adam Gadol, but that's not the normative approach. That's what Rabbi Sabolovsky told me, Rabbi Neuberger. Again, Rav Shechter, I don't need to tell you, I'm not, I'm not even part of this yeshiva. So you, who are part of the yeshiva, are, are very well aware that Rav Shechter is godless, but just to know that the Shita is out there, that Rav Shechter is not happy with all of this because he, he questions whether or not the Yuchsen is, uh, carries over. Kahuna, like that would be another Nakamina. Supervision in the labs, when the first, when, when, when the first Shailah started to come to the Abonim of the time, Rav Vadi Yosef, the Tzitaliyazah, Rav Yashif, Rav Bosner, and they started to deal with the Shailahs, they were very, very concerned with what's going on in the labs. Very often... The, you go to the lab and you give over your sperm and the egg and everything like that and the doctors take it behind closed doors you never see it again. And the Rabbanim were petrified 
of the fact that we don't know what's going to be with this egg, we don't know what's going to be with the sperm. Maybe it's going to end up in the wrong place, maybe it's going to be mixed with something else. And for that reason, many of the early poskim forbade these uh, <laughs> treatments because they were too nervous about the future ramifications. And actually, Pua, uh, Pua 30 years ago, Rabbi Menachem Borstein, who's the head of the founder of Pua, came up with a, a pikuach system, a supervision system, similar to what we do in restaurants, to have supervision at every step of the game of the fertility process. There are designated individuals who are there, meaning we have supervision every day in labs all over the world. Anytime women, women, men bring in genetic material, it's done under supervision. We know exactly where it's going every step, every step of the way. So that's also an important factor to remember that it's true that maybe the poskim are matir, but it should be done with halachic supervision, as for many of the rabbanim and the Yisrael. Hotzad In order to have an insemination, in order to have an IVF, the husband needs to procure a sperm sample. He needs to be motzizera, right? And very often it's not happening inside of his wife. So then we have real Shiloh Hotzaz Zer Levatoa. How are we supposed to procure the sample when we're told from a young age that masturbation, Hotzaz Zer Levatoa, is all very problematic? So what do we do in this, these types of scenarios? What happens if a woman has to be, uh, go under uh, some type of treatment, some type of procedure, and she hasn't been tovelas yet? Let's say the doctor wants to do the insemination, right? They, let's say you take this lady from L.A., right? She ovulates on day nine. So in order for her to get pregnant, they need to do an insemination on day seven, okay? She's still going to be Anida. That baby is going to be conceived when she's Anida. Is that permissible? Is it permissible to, for that a woman should get pregnant with, uh, with sperm while she is, with her husband's sperm while she is still Anida, right? What happens if you have to go in on Shabbos? What happens if the doctor says, I need you to come in on Shabbos? Right? That is a very common Shiloh. What happens if I need blood work on Shabbos? Could you explain why would be, why can't they just do it on Sunday and Monday? Yeah, very, very good question. The way the IVF cycle works is that they start taking medication. They start taking medication, let's say around 10 to 12 days before they pr- the projected date where they're going to harvest the eggs. But then, depending on the med- how their body responds to the medication, right, then that date, that projected date of harvesting, the, the retrieval, may, uh, it may shift. Because a woman, we said that she ovulates how many eggs one, every month? Just one. But we don't want her to just ovulate one month, one egg that month that we retrieve all the eggs. We want her to, we want to retrieve a lot of eggs, try to make as many embryos as we can when we're doing IVF. We only want a woman to do IVF once. We don't want her to do it as many times, you know, we want her to limit as many times as possible. So in order to ensure that many eggs will be mature and ready to be harvested, so the woman will take hormones and drugs to uh, stimulate ovarian production. And, uh, and the maturation of the eggs. So depending on how, uh, how her body responds, sometimes she responds quicker, and it looks like they're going to have to retrieve the eggs sooner than they thought. Sometimes it's slower, so they're going to have to push it off a day or two. So in order to monitor, to make sure that she's not overstimulated or everything is going kisei there, so then we need blood work, I mean, we need monitoring to make sure that everything is going on the right pace, 
So sometimes it falls out on Shabbos. So the doctor will say, okay, we're still not sure when the projected date is going to be. Why don't you come in tomorrow? come tomorrow. Tomorrow's Saturday. Tomorrow's Shabbos. I can't come. But then the nurse says, well, I need, we need to monitor you. We need your blood work. We need to know what to do with you. Maybe you're going to have to take another shot tomorrow. We, we won't know until we see the blood work tomorrow. So then we usually get frantic calls. Arab Shabbos. What am I supposed to do? Are we allowed to go in? Are we allowed to go into the city tomorrow? Are we allowed to have a nurse come to the house to take blood? These are, these are big shilas. What happens if a woman is in Nida? Right? We, we, let's say that. Let's say she's already in either, but let's say, does the procedure make you in either? Let's say a woman has an IVF cycle, or she, she does a, they, they take out the eggs, or a woman is, does, does a, uh, an IUI, they, they, <coughs> they inseminate her. Does that make a woman in neither? Right? So we're going to have to figure out neither shilas, yeah. So that's, a, that's an excellent shiloh. That's a really fantastic shiloh. Uh, just to, I, if I think, if I understood your shiloh correctly, Let's say a woman is in the middle of Zion Nikiyim, and then she has an insemination because she, hasn't, she, she isn't able to, to ovulate on, you know, when she's supposed to. She's ovulating early. So then, so we do an insemination, and Zerah goes into the, to the woman, and then she still wants to finish up her Zion Nikiyim. So do we say that she has to wait an additional five days now because she's polite to Sheikh Zerah? Or, no. She, was already, she already waited her five days originally before her Zainikim, and she's kind of satisfied that requirement. The fact that there was uh, more Zera that went into her, so that, that not. So I'll tell you, fantastic Shiloh. So I think Reb David Cohen is Machmer on the Shiloh. I was told Reb David Feinstein is Mako on the Shiloh. Um, in the Nishma Savram, yeah. not so at, at all. Right, not so at all. In Nishma Savram, which is a very important sefer, we don't have time to discuss it now, but Nishma Savram talks about all different types of medical shilas. Nishma Savram mentions from Shoma Zalman and from Ravavadya. And Shoma Zalman and Ravavadya say that since the zera goes all the way up into the uterus, and once it goes into the uterus, it's not going to come back down. So we don't say poleta shikh zera if the zera goes all the way into the uterus. Uh, if the zera goes into the vaginal canal just like a regular tashra, then yeah, shik pelat to shikh But if it goes all the way up, so then there were never goes a shikh lazera, pelat to shikh and zera that went directly into the uterus. They say also, from the Shmasab Ram, it's unclear what Rebel Yashif held about it, but he brings there from a later, in the later editions of Nishmasab Ram, he brings there Rebel Yashif actually told someone that he thinks you can be makal as well. <coughs> and then there's a the famous uh, Shaila whether a baby who is born through IUI or through IVF, if he's born on Shabbos, are you allowed to do the bris milah the following Shabbos? Is a milah of a baby who is born through IVF and IUI, so is that docha Shabbos? Right there, Rav Shechter, I think, is of the opinion that it is not docha Shabbos. Why? Why? Oof, good questions you're asking here. There is a Rabbeinu Chananel, there is a Rabbeinu Chananel in Chagiga. I believe. It's in Chagiga, right? Benu Hananel in Chagiga. That seems to say that Tumas Leida, that Tumas Leida, Isha Kisa Azriya Vyalda Zachar. So when there's Tumas Leida, so then the Mila is Docha Shabbos. And he says that you only with Tumas Tumas Leida if you, if you are, if you get pregnant naturally, if you get pregnant through something which is not Maisenisim. So Rav Shechter <coughs> says that maybe if you get pregnant through IUI or IVF, that's not normal. It's it's Bechlal Maisenisim, 
And if it's Maisa Nisim, the Isha is not even Matami Tumas Leida. And if you're not Matami Tumas Leida, so the Bila is not Docha Shabbos. Very Gishmak. I don't know if you were there really early, but a few years ago, I think last, I think it was last year, Vasha Weiss was in the five towns with Shai Shachter had invited him. Yeah, yeah, there. So, so, so someone asked the Shaila, I think Ari Leibowitz, Ari Leibowitz asked the Shaila whether or not, or maybe Shai asked it, whether or not uh, the Mila is Docha Shabbos. And, and you know, everybody in the room knew that Rav Shachter's opinion that it is Doch, that it's not Docha Shabbos. And Rav Asher said, who in the world would say that a bris milah is not Docha Shabbos? Of course it's Docha Shabbos. I, don't, I can't even think who in their right mind would say such a thing. And everyone kind of just like laughed. And I think Rabbi Leibowitz was moderating. It could be Shai even asked the Shaila. Obviously, you know, it was, it was crystal clear <coughs> what the opinions were. And I'm sure Rav Asher knew Rav Shechter's opinion, but he was very adamant that the bris milah is certainly Docha Shabbos. And uh, actually, my colleague in Pua, Rabbi Eliezer Kron, <coughs> Rabbi Pesach Kron's son, so he's a male. And, uh, and he doesn't, he, he, was, he was taught by the Gedol Yisrael that you don't even have to ask. That molim are not, they're mechuyiv to ask, let's say it's a Shabbos bris, right? They're mechuyiv to ask if it's a vaginal birth, right? If it was a C-section, the meat was not docha Shabbos. So a mole, before he does meal on Shabbos, has to be very confident that this, that this meal is taka docha Shabbos. But uh, the question of whether the baby was conceived through artificial insemination or through IVF, that's not even one of the shilas that a mole is obligated to ask. <laughs> and here's a very hot topic. <clears throat> now that we have the, um, the, the exposure and the access to all of these treatments, so sometimes they're abused. And very often women who are unable to get married, they're older, they're single, they kind of give up hope in the, you know, finding a husband, but they still want to be a mother, they still want to be a parent. So uh, sometimes they ask, sometimes they don't ask, about taking a sperm donation and doing their own insemination to become a single mother. Right before this, it was very hard to become a single mother if they didn't have access to a male. Now it's very simple to become a single mother, even if you don't have access to a male. All you need is access to a sperm bank, and once you have a sperm bank, so then you can become a single mother. And that's a serious question that the post can have to deal with: what is our attitude, and how do we uh, handle the situation where you have a single woman who wants to be a uh, a, a mother? So these are just a few <coughs> of the halachic issues that can come your way from a very basic, <coughs> simple. Uh, situation of a couple that needs to do IVF. You're going to have to deal with serious issues of purvu, yuchsin, kahuna, uh, definitely uh, supervision, it could be that it's going to happen during the before tefillah. Shabbos comes every seven days in Shabbos. Right? It happens all the time. People are going to ask about nida, mila. These are basic questions that, uh, basic, complicated, sophisticated questions that are going to come from your balabatim, we're going to come from people, innocent people, that are just trying to have a baby, just doing what's medically appropriate in order to, uh, in order to have a baby. We have to, it, 2.30 is like a strict 2.30, we're going to dab mincha, or? No, we could do Okay, so I'll just go through very quickly um, some, some of, the, just uh, a perush on, uh, on those things. So when it comes to the sugya puruvu, so the... The, 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 biggest, the biggest and earliest one who wrote about not being kind of proof was Rabbi Yaakov Emden. He was already writing, but Rabbi Yaakov Emden already in, 17, in the 17, uh, probably, I think it was 1771, or earlier, I forget exactly when that tshuva was written, but um, he writes a tshuva, and he says that the couple is not, the, the husband is not Mekayim Puruvu. He's talking about insemination, and he says the Zrika is not Mekayim Puruvu. He's not Mekayim Puruvu, <coughs> whereas Rabbi Moshe Feinstein Paskins clearly uh, in the Grasmoisha, that uh, that it is. 
the earliest discussion about it, or the early discussion in Beishmol, the very beginning of Eben Ezra and Shulchan Aruch, talks about the case of the Gemara and Chagiga, where a woman gets pregnant from the bathtub. Are you familiar with this case? A husband is mazriah into a man is mazriah into the bath, right? and then the woman subsequently goes into the bath, and the zera from the bath goes into her and impregnates her. So it's unbelievable. We have a source in the Gemara that discusses this case of IUI. It doesn't talk about it in a medical context, but in a case where a woman can get pregnant with Adam <coughs> just having the zera going into her, of the case of this Abra Bambati, so that's already a Gemara. It's a Gemara Mifureshes. And the question already that the Beishmuel and the Chakos Machokek question is whether such a man is Makayim Puruvu if the wife got pregnant through the case of Ms. Abra Bambati. And the Beishmuel Paskins, yes. It seems like the baby is... Uh, Baby is Misiachis to the father, and the husband is Makayim Puruvu, and uh, from Yeshiva University, right, as we said before, Rabbi Shechter holds that they're not really Makayim Puruvu, Rabbi Willig disagrees, and Kemat will the other Rabbanim side with Rabbi Willig on this matter. Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank in Har Tzvi has a nice chuba where he says that the baby is certainly Misiachis to the father, and <coughs> the father is certainly Makayim Puruvu. He says, even though the doctor is the one that's doing the insemination, it's like a shliach. The doctor serves as a shliach. Okay, it's a shalom shlichos Maybe it's a chumra to go to a Jewish doctor, so there's shlichos. There's shlichos for a Jew. You can be machmer that the doctor is actually shliach for the Baal, and he's machavin for the fact. So he says that, uh, so he says, certainly the husband is Makayim Puruvu, and the blood is Mesiaches to, uh, to, uh, to the parents. Rav Vosner in a nice tshuva, in a nice letter that he writes, beautiful words, The children to their parents are absolute children of the you know, uh, ambiguous state of yichos of of, kiyum, uh, of, the, of the existence. Chas v'shalom, they're normal kindelach, normal chol davar. And he writes as he signs his name. And there's another truth where Yashiv also signs off with this that the basic of the approach of the Gedolei Yisrael is that the parents are makayim peruvu, the fathers makayim peruvu with uh, IVF, and uh, and the vlad is misyaches. This this. Tshuva in Igris Moshe. Rav Moshe is the most mekel, where he says that the Vlad is Mesiaches, right? And the father is Makayim Puruvu. And he says that even if the woman was born, right, from these, if a girl is born from these, uh, from these procedures, even if the father, it's a crazy case, even if the father, let's say, was a sperm donor, right? Let's say the father was a sperm donor, and a woman who was, let's say the husband didn't have any sperm, and they took Zera from a non-Jewish man, and the woman got pregnant and gave birth to a baby girl. So typically, if, one's, if a girl's father is a guy, right, so then typically we say that she's not allowed to marry a Kohen. A Kohen is not allowed to marry a girl if, she, if her father is a guy. But Moshe writes, but that's only if the woman got pregnant naturally. If a woman got pregnant from a guy through IVF or through IUI, so the product of that um, procedure is not Asr Lakayin. A woman is allowed to, uh, and I had this case, I had this case not too long ago. Um, you know, you have it all the time. But uh, I had a very interesting case. Even if the donor wasn't Jewish? Even if the donor was not Jewish, right. Even if the donor was not Jewish. 
Would it be more problematic if the donor was Jewish? Problematic in certain sense. Rabbi Moshe writes, meaning there's, there's two issues if the donor is Jewish. There's a potential mamzerus shayla because you're inseminating a, an ashes ish, right? But if you hold it, Rabbi Moshe has a shita that mamzerus is not uh, generated without a maizadiyah. Rabbi Moshe writes that mamzerus will not take place if there is no maizadiyah. Um, just to go to, to, to understand the weight of that psak. If you have a mamzer and a mamzeres who get married, right? So typically their children will be mamzerim. But if they have children through IVF, right? They could undo the mamzeres. You could eradicate mamzeres. You could. We have a way, according to Moshe, to completely eradicate mamzeres in the in the world. You'd have to put an end to znus, which is a shame that we should we should be zocha to put an end to znus. But kozman znus occurs, then there will be mamzeres. But if znus stopped. And everyone, all the mamzerim for Tkufa, for one generation, just did IVF. So then all of, according to Moshe, all of the mamzerim will, will completely eradicate mamzerim. <coughs> so anyway, this is a, a really phenomenal psaq that Rosh told me he has a very hard time with it. He doesn't agree with it. But Rav Moshe <coughs> holds that even if the uh, donor is not Jewish, so then the Vlad is able to marry a Kohen, it's not a problem. What about Hotzo Zer Levatola? This is one of the most common and, and relevant Shailas. I just, just want to I apologize. So what about the Hotzo Zer So when it comes to Hotzo Zer there's it's interesting to know that there's two dimensions of the issue of Hotzo Zer Levatola. There is the, there is the Shita that holds that uh, Hotzo, the reason why there's Hotzo Zer Levatola is because it's a chilek of the Mitzvah of Puruvu, right? And if you're Mozi Zer Levatola, so then it's, you're, you're losing out on that opportunity of Puruvu. But here, in this context, where the whole purpose is for Puruvu, right? Maybe you could say <coughs> that there would be no Isra for Hotzal altogether. The issue with that is that there's many Rishonim that hold that the Isra of Sheikh Hotzal exists independent of Puruvu. That even if a couple was not worried, not, not engaged in Puruvu, but they were, they were just, husband was Mosi Zera, he's over an Isra of Losinaf, uh, which the Gemara needed in Gimel, Amadeis. Says that, uh, that there's a pasuk of losinav applies, applies to hotzal uh, zelavatala, and Rav Moshe Feinstein's itself writes in Igros Moshe in a number of places that he holds that the iser to masturbate is actually an iser deraisa of losinav, not just because it's a bitul of puruvu, but it's an iser deraisa of losinav, completely uh, independent of of, of uh, puruvu. So if you learn that the whole iser of shichla zelavatala was just the, the flip side of Puruvu, so then you could say, okay, I'm trying to have a child. Fair game. The issue is that it's not so clear. And therefore, we really discourage uh, masturbation because to produce the sample because you violate the Yisra of Losinaf, according to Ramosha, which really has nothing, has nothing to do with... Um, <coughs> which has nothing to do with, uh, with Puruvu. So what are we supposed to do? So this is me in uh, Bigo Cholom Hospital looking at doing a semen analysis on many different uh, samples. Fascinating. But uh, the Gemara Nyevamas already talks about how to procure a sample when we need to figure out the case that the Gemara is discussing is if a person's a Koshifcha or a person's a Ptsudaka, and we know that a person's not allowed to be married. Also, level of Kalashem, they're Ptsudaka. So there's a case the Gemara, we're not sure whether the Zera is going to come out of the right hole. So the Gemara says, well, let's have him be Motsi Zera and we'll see whether it's going to come out of the right hole. But then, wait a minute, how, what are you supposed to do? So the Gemara already discusses this. How are you supposed to get it out? Halacha Lamaisa, just time is, uh, time is up. So Halacha Lamaisa, what we typically tell people is, uh, Rav Moshe writes that it's Aser. 
So you should wear a condom, uh, says Reb Moshe, or do it in some other way. The Tzitz Eliezer will matter a condom b'diyevet, as does Reb Chaim Moiser. So what we typically advise couples is uh, two ways. Either to have regular relations, uh, and then to stand, the woman stands up and she collects the zera into a cup, a sterile cup, and then she brings the, uh, the cup into the lab. Or to use a condom, and to be semichan Reb Chaim Moiser and Tzitz Eliezer, not to, uh, you know, although it's generally problematic to wear a condom, but for this purpose, you're not going to violate you're not going to be doing any masturbation, and in terms of levatala, it's not going to be levatala because it's for the sake of puruhu. So if we could avoid masturbation, that's usually the best, to either do it uh, just to collect it in a cup after tashmish, or to use a condom, that would be uh, the most ideal. Uh, remember, just going back like the marks in Yivonis Samachdala that we began with, that that halachic definition of of uh, <coughs> of infertility. So there are places that say you have to wait an X number of years before you're able you're actually able to do this because it's a big shaila to be mashamish with a condom is not pashut. I think we've all been taught in some context that condoms are not uh, advised, are not recommended. So who said we're allowed to just enter the situation where we're allowed to have relations with our wives? Through a condom. Who gave us the heter? So actually the post can say, it's not so pashid, and maybe you have to wait. Rav Shechter, when I asked Rav Shechter, Rav Shechter said, how could you do it? Rav Moshe says five years. You have to wait five years. So I, I, I told Rav Shechter, you know, that that's a, like, a, lo- a long time. You know, it's true that the Rav Moshe says five years, but Menchazizok says ten years, Chazin says two years. The Rav Oldenberg, the Tzitzeliezer, says there's no window of time, but uh, whatever is considered normal, and uh, it's all subjective. But Rav Shechter told me something interesting that he said when Rav Moshe said five years, he was talking about a condom. He said, even according to Rav Moshe, it sounded like he wanted to be machmer like Rav Moshe, even according to Rav Moshe Feinstein, he would not say that you have to wait five years if, it's, if we're talking about the collection after Tashmish, where the husband's Mosi Zera inside of his wife, Kiragil, in Kedera Kol Aretz, and then she stands up and collects the Zera. That would be Motor even before five years, according to Rav Moshe. Um, as we said before, that there's an important stress in the postgame to have supervision and uh, just to see some of the articles in the recent papers um, of mix-ups that have occurred in fertility labs um, amongst the goyim in, in non-Jewish worlds without supervision, but it's pretty uh, catastrophic. And this is just last summer, right, July 11, 2019, from a couple from, I saw it when I saw the news, I my heart stopped because it was, they said from Flushing. I'm from Flushing. So the couple from Flushing. The other side of Pugar and Souls is the Chinese. So it happened to a Chinese couple. So a Chinese couple in a, in, a, in a center in Los Angeles, they gave birth. They were expecting two twin girls, and they gave birth to two black boys. And there was a mix-up in the lab in Los Angeles, and it was all over the news, and it was a tr- tr- crazy lawsuit. <coughs> so these things, uh, these things actually happen. So it's important to make sure that there's um, supervision in the labs. We say that the many poskim in Chashlomi, Chatzitzchak, and Ravadia permit a woman to go to mikvah uh, even before the, to do the the, uh, the insemination even before mikvah. And when it comes to the Shabbos issues, there's so many questions that come up, and that really depends on how do you classify a chol on Shabbos. Not, not our Indian, but depending on what the status of a woman who's going through fertility is. Is she a chol is she is she a sakana's ever? Depending on her status in halacha, in Hilchul Shabbos, that will tell us, you know, will, will shed light on to what's permissible uh, to do on Shabbos. We spoke about the Mamzerus issue, right? Rav Moshe holds that there is no Mamzerus, and, 
other posts can disagree, but it's something we should keep in mind, that we should try to stay away from uh, treatments that have a shy of mamzeris, such as the case I told you about before with the two sisters sharing eggs. We typically avoid that. We typically avoid sperm donation from a yid, because we don't want there to be a shy of mamzeris, even though Ramosha Paskins that there is no Amzeris, but still, others disagreed, and it's a significant, significant Shailah. And then, there's an interesting case of, uh, let's say, a couple divorces. They get divorced, and they have embryos. They have frozen embryos for their treatment. Who gets ownership? Who has ownership over the embryos? If one demands uh, they want to get pregnant, the other says, no way. So what are you supposed to do with, uh, with those, those embryos? Sometimes you could throw them out. Sometimes you could use them for research. Shaila is, how does halacha view the status of an embryo? Are we allowed to just give it or throw it away? Is that like a little abortion? Are you allowed to give it uh, to research? And uh, Mila B'Shabis, so the Rebbe Shom Azalman wrote that he was in the Supak, Rebbe Yashi wrote that he was in the Supak, and this is what I told you before, where Rebbe Shechter says no, Rebbe Shavai says uh, absolutely. And uh, here is a tefillah that was composed by the Rabbanim of uh, Machampua, namely Rabbi Borstein, the head, that it's uh, important to feel it to stay. It's to say, anytime we're about to do fertility treatment, and uh, especially the, that involves relying on major leniencies, it's important to recognize the fact that we're not doing this because we want to uh, be lenient, to be mako. Certainly, if a husband has to be mozizera, we're not doing it for pleasure, we're doing it for the Ratzin Hashem. And the Ezra Hashem, HaKurish Baruch Hu, should bench all of the couples <coughs> who need Siyat Dishmaya, who need that special help from HaKurish Baruch Hu to get pregnant. It's such a difficult uh, such a difficult experience, not able to have children, and when Rabbanim are well, not, they're well versed and knowledgeable in these inyanim, and the couples feel comfortable call, calling their rav, speaking to their Rabbanim, and getting chizuk from their Rabbanim, and they feel like they're on the same page, it's a tremendous, it really is a tremendous chizuk that we as Rabbanim can do for the kahila, that we can do for our balabatim, and I, therefore I applaud you, uh, Rabbi Yorlian Rabbi and, and the Chevra, for incorporating a lesson like this into your smicha program to become more knowledgeable, more uh, familiar with these types of treatments, to be able to relate better to your balabatim, to advise them, to guide them better, and uh, and Be'ez Hashem carry out the Ratzon Hashem, help them be behind the Mitzvah Puru and help them be as atzliach as they can. So I wish you all hatzlacha, and if anyone has any questions, I'm more than happy to either take questions now, stay behind, we'll die, we'll die, and then after... And I'm more than happy to share the slides, share my phone number and email. I share the slides, right? I share the slides, okay? And any way that I could be a resource for anyone, I'll be more than happy. What's your email? My email? Yeah, I'll give it. There it is, my email. Yeah, yes, thank you. Okay, Hatzlach Arabo.